recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christianity.org. Today is Friday, January 9th, 2015. I have a few things to say before we begin tonight. About two weeks ago, and I've been meaning to announce this for the last two weeks, about two weeks ago we published Clifton's 199th and 200th Watchman's Teaching Letter on his website, emmaheiser.christagenian.org. We praise Yahweh for that milestone and pray that Clifton still has many more. We're... Um, but we've let johnh44.org, which is a Christiania project, it was conceived four or five years ago as a place for men, many of the Christiania forum members and, and, and chat room members to um, collaborate, and, and it's sort of languished the last two years, and, and very little's been posted. So we're going to... Um, redo that website, and we've worked out a new concept for the John H. 44. website. It, it's basically going to be a um, a newly planned article, let me say that, it's not written yet, explaining why Jesus Christ was not a Jew, and also a video blog. And, and that's going to be about the extent of that website, a, a simple message that reveals the treachery of the Jews in world history, their treacherous role in world history over the past several centuries. We have um, many excellent videos which we didn't produce, which had been produced by others, but which are um, available, which we hope to post on that site to make it basically an easy place to send people to learn the truth about the Jews and about our kinsman redeemer. Tonight will not be one of my longer presentations, but only because for the most part I wanted to limit the discussions to this one topic, while at the same time not beating it to death. The subtitle of tonight's presentation is very simply Christian love. And I'm certain that we all have our favorite passages to quote in relation to that topic. I will probably miss some of those tonight. The children of Israel have yet to practice that Christianity which is found in absolute brotherly love on any great scale. Yet, it is one of the lessons of history that they must learn before perfecting their obedience to Christ. Firstborn amongst many brethren, if we have brotherly love, we must put him first. However, misguided love, Misguided love probably does greater harm to the children of Israel than practically every other sin, especially since misguided love leads them into blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and to their very own demise. 
the epistles of Paul, 1 Corinthians part 15, 15 part 15 in our series, Christian Love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul of Tarsus had turned from addressing aspects of Christian deportment in the pagan world to addressing aspects of Christian deportment within the assembly of Christ itself. However, it must be remembered that from chapter 7 of this epistle, Paul continues to address subjects which the Corinthians had inquired of him. And, and the disadvantage we have in that is that we don't know everything that the Corinthians knew and, and what their social problems were at the time and, and their problems with each other. We only know what we see from Paul's response to the Corinthians in this epistle and later on, maybe a year or so after this epistle was written, in 2 Corinthians. For that reason, the circumstances under which this epistle was written, Paul's discussions of these topics which he presents are not as complete as they may have been if Paul had actually intended to sit down and write essays explaining them. But instead, his discussions of these topics are based upon things about which the Corinthians had questions in relation to the things which they had already been taught. And remember, Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth, as explained in the book of Acts. Therefore, it is necessary to have a thorough understanding of all preceding scripture before one may understand Paul, because scripture is Paul's authority and the guide for Paul's worldview. Additionally, it is necessary to understand as much of Paul's own letters as possible because his letters as a whole are a reflection of his study of Scripture as well as his reception of the Gospel, his knowledge of history, and other things. No one statement by Paul can be forcibly interpreted as if to conflict with either the balance of his own writings or with the Holy Writ. If one has such an interpretation of anything which Paul wrote, one must reconsider it rather than unwittingly projecting one's own hypocrisy onto Paul of Tarsus. If you claim to be a Christian, you should agree with the Christian scriptures. If you have conflicting views of something, then you shouldn't claim to be a Christian if you're doubting the Christian scriptures. If you have a problem with anything in Paul of Tarsus, that's fine, but you should keep it to yourself until you study it or seek better understanding elsewhere because Paul was not a hypocrite. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verses 20 and 21, Paul spoke of the members of the Christian assembly who had attended Sabbath-day gatherings, eating and drinking, while others of their brethren at those same gatherings were going without food and drink. Paul did not address this directly except to ask them whether they had houses in which to eat and to drink, telling them explicitly that the reason for their gathering is not to eat the supper of the Lord, as he called those meals which Christians shared or should share in common with one another. While Paul had also used this occasion in his reply to address other important aspects of Christian communion, he otherwise seems to have ignored the behavior of those wealthier Corinthian Christians towards their less fortunate brethren who were going hungry at the Sabbath day gatherings. But in reality, Paul did not ignore that. He did not ignore that behavior. Paul did correct those wealthier Corinthians in this epistle, but in a very discreet manner, so as to teach them a lesson without censuring or embarrassing them. The evidence of this correction is found here in 1 Corinthians 13.3 in a statement which is included into a broader discourse on the varying gifts of God bestowed upon men in relation to the need of Christians to have love above all other things, including those gifts which they may be granted. Of course, the application of Christian love in the mind of Paul and Tarsus Paul of Tarsus, must be understood in the context which Paul himself provides. And in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, Paul had already discussed those who were partaking of communion in the assembly of Christ unworthily. And that Christians, Christian Israelites, because Paul is talking, as 1 Corinthians chapter 10 proves, Paul is talking to descendants of the ancient Israelites. And the Christian Israelites should make a distinction of themselves, where, in part, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he concluded that, if then, we had made a distinction of ourselves, perhaps we would not be judged keeping those spots out of our feasts of charity. Therefore, Christians are bound to love one another, and Christians are also obligated to discriminate against those who are unworthy of the body of Christ. Understanding this, it must also be understood that Paul considered the body of Christ properly to consist of Israel according to the flesh, 
1 Corinthians chapter 10. That's how Paul described Israel. That's how he defined Israel as being according to the flesh. Of those of the seed of Abraham who accepted the gospel of Christ, Paul explained this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in Romans chapter 4, as well as elsewhere in his epistles. There are three passages of Old Testament scripture which should give a Christian insight into how the members of the body of Christ should behave in relation to one another. The first is found in Exodus chapter 16. In the account of the gathering of manna in the desert, from verse 16, this is the thing which Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it every man according to his eating, an omer for every man, according to the number of your persons. Take ye every man for them which are in his tents. And the children of Israel did so, and gathered some more and some less, because some of us had the ability to gather more than others. And when they did, measure it out with an omer. He that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. While some men had a greater ability to gather than others, it is plainly evident that all men ate what they needed and that no man did without. The second scripture is in Leviticus chapter 19, where the law says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. Finally, the third passage is found in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where it says, Beware that thou forget not Yahweh thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I commanded thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied. Then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget Yahweh thy God, who brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy later end. And thou say in thine heart, 
my power and my might of mine hand has gotten me this wealth. For thou shalt remember Yahweh thy God, for it is he that gives thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swore unto thy fathers, as it is this day. We shall come back to this topic soon with the opening verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In the meantime, and in conjunction with what he is going to say in chapter 13, here in chapter 12, Paul has been illustrating that it is the will of God which is the source of the inspiration of man, and that those gifts which God bestows upon men are not distributed evenly but in a diverse manner, that one member of the body of Christ specializing in a certain area may use the expertise which he or she is granted from God in order to serve the rest of the body. Discussing this in our last presentation, we saw some relevant examples from Old Testament Scripture. With this, Paul also explained that the lesser members of the body of Christ should be esteemed equally and even more abundantly than the more noble or more elegant members. When we are granted gifts from God, we should not despise those of our brethren who are not so gifted. Paul then concluded, speaking to the Corinthian Christians, by saying in verse 27, so then, you are an anointed body or a body of Christ and members by destiny. Each and every child of Israel was foreknown by Yahweh and appointed to fulfill the destiny which Yahweh has assigned to them. Here Paul continues by discussing some of the gifts which God bestows upon men in order that men may fulfill their role in his kingdom. Paul uses spiritual gifts as an example, considering them to be the better gifts. However, the perception of Paul's intention should not be limited to spiritual gifts alone. Indeed, members of the body of Christ are blessed with carnal gifts as well. Continuing with 1 Corinthians chapter 12, from verse 28. And while Yahweh places these in the assembly, firstly, ambassadors, secondly, interpreters of prophecy, thirdly, teachers, and after that, those with abilities or powers, then gifts of the means of healing, supports, guides, sorts of languages, that word dunamis is those with abilities here in the Christian New Testament because that is one of the meanings of the word. And we've seen in the Old Testament scripture that Yahweh God had granted certain abilities to certain of the children of Israel in order to accomplish a task. Now, the... Church translations want to render that word abilities as, as those who perform miracles or something, something similar to that. 
but that's simply not necessarily the case, especially since most of the miracles which Christ and the apostles performed had to do with healing, and that's mentioned here separately. The church translations are, are um, tied to that hour that you spend in their church on Sunday. And, and it's funny that the way they see those with abilities, those people that flop around on the floor and do things, you, if, if there was any truth to that, those people that flop around on the floor and speak in tongues, they would do stuff like that in the workplace where they spend 40, 50 hours a week or, or in a restaurant or, or anywhere but in the church. But somehow they only do that stuff when they go to this church building on Sunday because they're full of it. It's an act. It's a game. It may be psychological. They might think it's going on but they're full of it. Christianity is a 24-7 religion. In verse 31, Paul considers these abilities, the, the, these um, offices, the interpreters of prophecy or the prophets, the teachers, the, the, the ambassadors. He considers these things to be the better gifts ostensibly because they all either give insight into the word and will of God or after the manner of the spirit of Pentecost, they openly demonstrate the power of Yahweh in the world. There is a note and a short digression here, which and, and I made it a couple of weeks ago and I have to make it again today, which must be made concerning the word prophetes. According to um, Liddell and Scott, the meaning of the word is one who speaks for a God and interprets his will to man. Generally, an interpreter, a declarer in the New Testament, one who possesses the gift of prophetia, of prophecy, an inspired preacher and teacher. And then Liddell and Scott also add the usual biblical interpretation of the word, the revealer of God's counsel for the future, a prophet in the modern sense of the word, a predictor of future events. And we have to take into account, I hate to use the word dispensation, but the dispensation of God, the way God communicates with the children of Israel at various times. So I'm using the word dispensation in a different manner than the universalists use the word, and a more correct one. Paul said in Hebrews chapter 1 that on many occasions and in many ways in times past, Yahweh had spoken to the fathers by the prophets. At the end of these days, he speaks to us by a son, whom he has appointed heir of all through whom he also made the ages. Joshua Christ, Yahweh incarnate. This indicates that there would be no longer any prophets in the Old Testament sense of the word. But that all future revelation of the will of God would come through Christ. 
bearing that in mind, in the Christian New Testament, the word is rendered as prophet when the subject of the reference dates to before the resurrection. But it is an interpreter of prophecy when the subject of the reference is later than the resurrection. There are a couple of exceptions to that in the book of Acts, and for good reason. So the modern sense of the word, as Liddell and Scott call it, is only accurate in relation to the age prior to the resurrection, since Paul's words concerning this in Hebrews chapter 1 are certainly accurate. But however accurate that assessment is, it does not take into account a third way in which the word was used. And it is this way that I believe the word is used in the book of Acts. For instance, of the, um, the daughters of Philip, I believe it was, or the daughters of Hagabus, or Hagabus himself, who was a prophet. This sense, this third way, is that a prophet could refer to one who had the uncanny ability to reveal the secrets of men or things about them or about their lives, not necessarily about the future of the children of Israel. That would be told by Christ in the Revelation, but about the lives of individuals, which could not be known without some divine guidance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, at verses 24 and 25, this use of the word is certainly what Paul intends, and we will discuss that, Yahweh willing, in our next presentation of 1 Corinthians. But in the Christogenian New Testament, we continue to see it rendered as an interpreter of prophecy in those instances as well. We may see that men receive messages from the Spirit of God. But men can only employ those messages effectively if they are able to interpret them correctly. The entire meaning, however, is difficult to effectively relate in translation on every occasion. So when we see interpreter of prophecy, it, it's um, my interpretation of that word prophetes in the New Testament period, where it no longer applies, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the same sense that it was used or understood of the Old Testament prophets who wrote down visions and, and, and things that they had received from God and are known as prophets for that reason, Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And, and they wrote those things down, even if, and this is clear on several occasions in the prophets, even if they themselves didn't quite understand what they were writing. So the last prophet in that sense is the apostle. The apostle John. But he was only recording what he said, and we should 
certainly believe it. What he said was the revelation of Yahshua Christ. So John was really only the scribe, as he admits. Verse 29, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, are all ambassadors, are all interpreters of prophecy, are all teachers, are all able, or do all have abilities, if we want to emphasize the translation of the words. Do all have gifts of the means of healing? Do all speak in languages? Do all interpret? Now you admire the better gifts. These were considered the better gifts. And yet I show to you a way just as excellent. Even though Paul uses these spiritual gifts as examples and he considers them to be the better gifts, he shall explain in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that these gifts are also temporal. That means that just like the carnal abilities which are endowed upon men by God, these gifts too shall pass away as Paul further explains in the chapter to come. So a Christian, even if he is endowed with all of these wonderful gifts, is still nothing if he does not have love, as Paul is about to explain. According to the Gospel of Christ, love for our brethren, over and above any concern for worldly riches, is one way, at least, of how Christians store up treasure in heaven. From Matthew chapter 19, from verse 16, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. <clears throat> he saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? What do I still lack? <laughs> Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell what thou hast, and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now this, too, is only another example, because not all men have any degree of wealth. So it's not the only way to get to the kingdom of heaven or to store up treasure in heaven. Furthermore, not all men 
are ambassadors or apostles, and not all men are interpreters of prophecy or teachers. In fact, the Apostle James, in the third chapter of his lone epistle, warns that you must not produce many teachers, my brethren, knowing that we shall receive a greater judgment. Not all men are gifted in languages, and not all men have the means of healing. In truth, relatively few men or women are truly gifted with any of these things. Paul is not stating that all men should aspire to these things. And many of those today who do have such gifts sell them to Satan. They sell them to the Jews for a worldly reward rather than use them freely to edify the body of Christ. That is the single largest challenge to understanding Christianity today, that historically it has never been practiced with any success. The first Christian communities, which were described by Luke in the book of Acts, were persecuted and dispersed by the enemies of God, by those who are now known as Jews. And while there may have been other attempts, all have failed who have tried to replicate that Christian community of Acts chapter 4. The word economy is abused in modern English because it is generally used to refer only to commerce. However, the Greek word from which it was derived, the word oikonomia, originally referred to the management of a household or a family. Of course, a family is a household. Paul described his ministry as an oikonomia in relation to the reconciliation of the family of Israel to Yahweh. Typically, the management of a family requires many skills other than those which merely enable one to engage in commerce. Paul did not list ambassadors, prophets, teachers, miracle workers, healers, or interpreters, and speakers of languages, because we should all aspire to be any of those things. Very few of us are any of those things. And when we do have these talents, we must recognize them as a gift from God and seek to employ that gift as best as we can. But there are other gifts as well, and ostensibly, whatever talent we have, whatever we as individuals are able to do, is actually a gift from God. And we should seek to use that gift, whether how great or how smart it is, or how, how great or how small it is, we should seek to use that gift in the edification of our Christian brethren. An economy, the management of a household, requires the skills of ranchers, farmers, carpenters, vine dressers, seamstresses, bakers, butchers, mechanics, smiths, and other talents as well. While these are not the better gifts which Paul describes, they are nevertheless integral to the maintenance of a family and, by extension, the community of the family of God found in the body of Christ. 
Not all members of the body of Christ are endowed equally. But men who have talents in these areas are every bit as inspired by God as those who are prophets, apostles, and teachers. Just as the prophet or apostle or teacher should share his gifts freely with the other members of the body of Christ, so should the proverbial butcher, baker, and candlestick maker. The ability of each individual member, the body of Christ, belongs to the body as a whole. Only then is Christianity put into practice. And until then, Christians shall be persecuted and enslaved by the world. When the kingdom of God is finally established, the word economy will once again have little to do with money, and it will be instead organized around brotherly love. With this, we will commence with 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If perhaps I would speak in the languages of many messages, or of men and of angels. But I do not have love. I have become brass sounding or a cymbal clanging. Paul makes the analogy that the sounds of any languages are actually meaningless unless Christians love one another. We may interpret that to mean that at the time of the fulfillment, only those things we have done whereby we have exhibited our love for our God and our brethren shall matter to us, because only those things have stored up for us treasure in heaven. Verse 2, And if I have the gift of the interpretation of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if perhaps I have all the faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am not. I am nothing. Even with all the gifts and the knowledge of God, without love, those gifts are meaningless. And if perhaps I employ all my possessions in feeding others, this right here is a shot at those people back there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 who were bringing feasts to the Sabbath day gatherings while others were doing without. And if perhaps I employ all my possessions in feeding others, and if I would hand over my body in order that I may boast, but I do not have love, I am do nothing. First, let's discuss that word boast, because in the King James Version, I noted it's burn. Or if I would hand over my body in order that I would be burned. That's the um, Codex Ephraimi Siri, 5th century, and the Codex Claromontanus. And the majority texts all have a form of the verb kahio, kate somahi. Kate somahi, K-A-U-T-H. 
The older manuscripts, the Codexes, Sinaiticus, and Vaticanus, as well as the Alexandrinus and the Vaticanus Grecus, which dates to the 5th century, and the 3rd century papyri, P46, they all have kake somahi, the difference is one consonant. And that means in order that I may boast, that I may boast. So, so this is a scribal error on one side or the other. As Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Christians at the time were undergoing persecution. Therefore, Paul infers that if he handed himself over to the enemies of Yahweh God as a Christian and was slain for that reason, that he would have a boast. And with that inference, he attests to his belief in the immortality of man, which Christians should believe. In his first epistle, that you could boast after you're dead, right? In his first epistle, the apostle Peter referred to the same persecutions where he said, yet if any man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Here we also have a subtle glimpse into the genius of Paul of Tarsus. In chapter 11 of this epistle, Paul did not directly upbraid those wealthier Christians who did not provide for the lesser brethren in the assembly. But rather, he gives them an example within a greater discourse on the gifts of God and the love which must accompany the use of those gifts. And that example is the gift of wealth. And that the gift of wealth is just another gift from God, as the spiritual gifts which he has also mentioned here. The law tells us, as we read at the beginning of our presentation this evening, the law tells us that same thing in Deuteronomy, chapter 8. Therefore, those members of the body with wealth should bear in mind that wealth is to be administered by those who are blessed in that manner for the edification of the body of Christ and the building of his kingdom, just like those other gifts which Paul mentions here. The gift of wealth is generally perceived as a carnal rather than a spiritual gift. However, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul had asked in relation to himself and the other apostles, if we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? The same principle applies as well in relation to the wealthy and the lesser members of the body of Christ, the wealthy and the poor. The Corinthian Christians, if they loved their less fortunate brethren, would either make certain that they could also eat, or if they weren't quite that wealthy, with humility 
They should have eaten their own meals at home and not in front of the poorer brethren who themselves had to do without. So they really had Christian love. As Paul says here, they would have spent themselves feeding others. From the wisdom of Sirach, from chapter 11, prosperity and adversity, life and death, poverty and riches come from Yahweh, come from the Lord. Wisdom, knowledge, and understanding of the law are of the Lord. Love and the way of good works are from him. So the possession of any and of all of these things, for better or worse, ultimately comes as a trial from God or as a gift from God. The Apostle James taught the same concept which Paul teaches here in a very different manner in James chapter 2. There he warned about treating poor brethren better than, or worse than, I'm sorry, worse than one may treat the wealthy. Among other things, he said, what does it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he has faith and has not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warm and filled. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body. What does it profit? You have no profit if you're wealthy or you have any substance and you wish your brother well, depart in peace. Be ye warmed and filled, but you're not giving him of your substance. Your prayer is meaningless. You have no fruit. There is no profit in that. And James goes on to say, even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Having faith, we must, we must realize that we should love our brethren as Christ also had. And therefore, we should devote our own lives to caring for one another rather than for ourselves as Christ set the example. Verse 4, love has patience, is beneficial. Love is not jealous. Love does not vaunt itself, is not inflated, does not behave disgracefully, seeks not things for itself, is not provoked, does not consider evil, does not rejoice upon injustice, but rejoices with the truth, contains all, trusts all, expects all, endures all. Provocation, vaunting, jealousy are all rooted in pride. 
The Apostle James wrote that God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Paul is about to add that love never fails. Paul is telling us of the value of love and how love in the heart of man should manifest itself in man. When we have love in our hearts, that love manifests itself in good works. But here Paul does not explicitly repeat what kind of love or what it is that we should or must love. And we cannot create our own context for these admonishments to love. I've heard sodomites say, oh, you don't have any love. Wow. No, I don't. Not for sodomites. Paul explains the character of love here. But love, like any other gift or attribute found among the members of the body of Christ, can also be misappropriated. We must not misappropriate our love, but rather we must observe Paul's context. And he has already admonished these Corinthian Christians not to keep company with nor partake of the tables of devils, not to have anything to do with fornicators, and also that they they should discriminate against others in favor of themselves because the members of the body of Christ should make a distinction of themselves, as he said at the end of chapter 11. Likewise, Paul conveyed to the Christians at Rome a message which was a summary form of this message here in chapters 12 and 13 in this epistle to the Corinthians. This is found in Romans chapter 12 where he wrote, and I will quote from verse 4, Just as in the body we have many members, but the members all do not have the same function. In this manner, we are many in one body with Christ, and each one members of one another, very much like his chapter 12 discourse here. But having varying gifts according to the favor which is given to us, whether interpretation of prophecy according to the proportion of faith, or service in a ministry, or he that is teaching in education, or he that encourages in encouragement, he that is sharing, those people who spend their wealth feeding others, he that is sharing with simplicity, he that is leading with diligence, he showing mercy with cheerfulness, love without acting, Abhorring wickedness, abhorring wickedness, cleaving to goodness, brotherly love, affection towards one another, in honor, preferring one another with diligence, not hesitating. Do not hesitate to discriminate against non-Christian Israelites. Fervent in spirit, serving the prince. Again, in Romans 12, we see 
one of the dispensations of Christians explained in the phrase, he that is sharing with simplicity. Where we see sharing mentioned among the gifts of teaching, prophecy, and ministering, this corroborates what we have asserted in this respect concerning this message to the Corinthians, that wealth is also a gift from God like any other, and is to be administered like any other. The Christian who hides his gifts is akin to the servant of the parable of Christ who hid his talent in the ground for fear of losing it. Paul told the Romans that they should love without acting or without hypocrisy, since the English word hypocrite is from the Greek word for actor, hypocrites, and that they should do so while abhorring or hating wickedness. In Psalm 97, the word of God says, in verse 10, ye that love Yahweh, hate evil. It doesn't say God hates evil. Ye that love Yahweh, hate evil. The people that love the Lord must hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. So we see an injunction for those that love God to hate evil. In 2 Chronicles, chapter 19, we see an admonishment against the king of Judah by a prophet, Jehu, where it says, And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate Yahweh? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before Yahweh. So Christians should certainly not love the ungodly. And Paul himself had advised that sinners be put out of the assembly of Christians here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. From Psalm 145, from verse 20, Yahweh preserves all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. So much for loving sodomites. From Deuteronomy chapter 7, Know therefore that Yahweh thy God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hates him. He will repay him to his face. People that reject the commandments of God display hatred for God. Christians are to reject those who reject the law of God. They're obligated to do that. We do not love those people. Therefore, as the scriptures say, and as Christ taught 
in the gospel, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, thy neighbor being, in the Hebrew sense of the word, one who was raised up with you in the same flock. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Loving God first, we must hate the wicked. And the wicked are not to be counted as neighbors, even when they are one of our own. They have room to repent. But as long as they're wicked, no, they are not to be loved. Christ said later, as it is recorded in the Gospel of John, in chapter 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. Then later in the same discourse in John chapter 15, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. And Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never fails, but whether interpretations of prophecy, they shall be abolished or languages, or tongues, speaking in tongues. They shall be brought to an end, or knowledge, it shall be left unemployed. Now the words abolished and unemployed here are both translated from the same Greek verb where I chose to avoid redundancy. By destiny we know, verse 9, and by destiny we interpret prophecy. But when the fulfillment would come, that by destiny shall be abolished. The phrase totalion, totalion, is literally the fulfillment here. Where the King James Version has that which is perfect. The word teleus or telias, Strong's number 5046, Properly, it would be Kalias. It's an adjective meaning finished, complete, or perfect. And here, it is a substantive, where with a definite article, toe, or ta, perhaps. It is used as a noun. I can also conjecture that the phrase totolion is the source of our English word total, the sum, the perfection. Now, this is a digression, but there is an obscure and interesting use of this word, which gives us insight into an aspect of Scripture, not an aspect of Scripture we're presenting here tonight, but... I couldn't, um, 
I couldn't help myself but to include this in tonight's presentation. The Greek historian Herodotus once used this same phrase, totalion, to translate what he said was a Persian word, tikta, which he said had referred to a great royal banquet. Liddell and Scott, in their Greek-English lexicon, also make a note of this usage, of, of this passage from Herodotus, which appears in Herodotus' histories in Book 9, in paragraph 110. In that place, describing a great royal banquet which the Persians had held annually, the historian wrote that Tikta is the feast is called in the Persian tongue, which in our language may be rendered perfect. And where Herodotus has that word perfect, he used the same phrase which Paul uses here, to Tolion. So what does that have to do with the Bible? In the Psalms of David, as they appear in the Septuagint, we often see in the prologues of those Psalms the words, for the end, a song of David. For the end, a song of David, over and over again. It's in Psalm 4, Psalm 5, 6, 8, 9, 11 through 14, 18, 19, so forth. It's frequent elsewhere. The Greek word in those places is telos, which means literally end or fulfillment or perfection. It's the noun from which the adjective telias is derived. <clears throat> the lingua franca of the Persian Empire at the time that Herodotus wrote was Aramaic. If the idiom described by Herodotus gives us any insight into the Hebrew usage, then David is not really saying that his psalms are for the end. Rather, they were written for a royal banquet. The banquet may have been celebrated for the fulfillment of something, such as one of Yahweh's appointed feasts. But the psalms were clearly performed to music for those very occasions. So David's psalms aren't written for the end. They're written for the royal banquet, for the fulfillment, as Herodotus said. The Persian word tikta meant. But the significance still has relevance for the end. As the Septuagint in both Greek and English understood the Hebrew word literally, since at the fulfillment of the ages, which Paul is referring to, the fulfillment of the ages prophesied in Scripture, there is indeed a great banquet. The marriage supper of the Lamb. 
So that <laughs> that's a um, an interesting facet of language and history, and also helps us to understand the purpose of the Psalms of David that they were actually performed at these banquets, which were called fulfillments, according to Herodotus, by the Persians. But their language at the time was very similar to Hebrew. To repeat Paul's ideas in verses 8 and 9, love never fails, but prophecy and its interpretation shall be abolished. Diverse languages or tongues shall be done away with. Knowledge, as we know it in this world, will no longer be necessary. God bestows upon each one of us certain gifts as he sees fit, but all of those gifts, regardless of what they are, are only temporal for our use and edification while we are in this world. So he says in verse 11, When I was an infant, I spoke as an infant. I thought as an infant. I reasoned as an infant. When I had become a man, I laid aside the things of the infant. Paul's making an analogy. So all of the wonderful gifts of God given to men in this world should be seen as toys given to infants, which the infant plays with and learns from. Once we come to the full understanding of the love of Yahweh our God, we too may see those things as Paul had understood them. Love for our God and our brethren brings us to Christ. However, we must do that on his terms and not on our own, which is loving his law and keeping his commandments. And we learn to love his law, keep his commandments, love our brethren through those gifts which he gives to us. Only in that manner are we mature Christians willing to conform ourselves to his image, even if our execution of that conformance is not entirely perfect. We should seek to conform ourselves to him. We should love his law and seek to keep it. Then we could put aside the things of the infant. For now we see through a mirror in riddles, but then, meaning at the fulfillment, face to face. Now I know by destiny, but then I will recognize just as also I have been recognized. The knowledge which any one of us have in this world is a gift from God. And if we have the ability to take the time to learn more, that too is a gift from God. Paul says of himself that now I know by destiny because, as he said elsewhere, God selected him from his mother's womb to fulfill the purpose of his life in the spread of the gospel. But no man can possibly know all things. And the truth of the things which shall matter in the end 
are not always clear. The Greek word for what we call a glass, or for what we call glass, the Greek word is hualos, a word which appears in the Revelation several, on several occasions, four, I believe. Here, the word which the King James Version has as glass, that's a more archaic form of the word glass. It means a mirror. The word here is esoptron. Strong's number 2072. And it only appears elsewhere in the New Testament in James chapter 1, verse 23. Joseph Thayer's Greek-English lexicon informs us that the mirrors of the ancients were made not of glass, but of steel. I've also seen them of bronze, highly polished, and other metals. And he cites several sources supporting his statement. Paul purposely used the word for mirror here. It's not glass that you see through. However, why he did so can only be conjectured. I may venture to guess that he used the term for a mirror, philosophically, because everything that we perceive is also a reflection of our own selves. We hear terms and concepts from men or read them in Scripture, and we filter them through our own worldview. We interpret words, instructions, and even events according to what knowledge we have at any given time. So all of our beliefs, our interpretations of the things we perceive, they're all a reflection of ourselves as well as the data that the events that we've seen or read the Greek word rendered as riddles here is the plural of hynigma, or I'm sorry, ahinigma. Strong number 135, from which we have the English word enigma. It is literally something which is obscure, a dark saying, or a riddle. There are many plain words of scripture laws that are very explicit. And then there are things which are related only in parables or that are obscure to each one of us in varying degrees. At the fulfillment, each child of God will see things as they really are. The King James Version ends this last clause this last verse, I'm sorry, with the clause. But then shall I know, even as also I am known. And of course, the Christian New Testament has recognized and recognized. The Greek word is epigenosko, Strong's number 1921. That word has a stronger connotation than the word Genosco, which is merely to know. According to Liddell and Scott, epigenosco may mean to look upon, witness, or observe, or to recognize or know again. 
to acknowledge or approve, to find out, discover, detect, and even in some contexts, to come to a decision, to come to know something, right? To resolve or to decide. Perhaps the word approve would also have been a fitting translation. Since no man may make it to the fulfillment to the marriage supper lamb, unless he is among those of whom Yahweh approves. So we may write, but then shall I approve even as also I am approved. In turn, while Paul uses a different word for approve in his epistle to the Philippians, he nevertheless says there in chapter 1 of that epistle, and this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ unto the glory and praise of God. The Christian, endeavoring to conform himself to Christ, is approving of the laws of Yahweh his God. Yet here, rather than approve, we chose to render at the Ginosko as recognize in agreement with others of Paul's teachings. Namely, in Romans chapter 8, where Paul said of Yahweh, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. In Amos 3.2, the word of Yahweh says to the children of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. If Yahweh has only known Israel, then only the children of Israel shall be recognized at the fulfillment of which Paul is speaking. Verse 13. And now, abide in faith, expectation, love, these three things, but the greater of these is love. because it matters when we get to that fulfillment, how we loved our God and our brethren. The Apostle John says in chapter 4 of his first epistle, Herein is love. Not that we loved God, because in the past we certainly haven't, but we must learn to. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, because if he didn't, he'd have kicked us to the curb 3,000 years ago or longer, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, 
if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby we know that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the society. I'm quoting the King James, but I won't say world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. And we have known and believe the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, that's free spokenness. Because as he is, so are we in this society. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God who he has not seen? No man has seen God at any time. John's making an analogy. And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. Paul of Tarsus went into this entire discourse concerning love in relation to the gifts which are from God in order to demonstrate that all the gifts of God are temporal, but that one's love for one's brethren is eternal. And by that, as John explained, we demonstrate our love for God, because ostensibly, being men, we can do nothing else for God who has and who does and who has created all things. We keep the commandments of Christ, as he showed us in John chapter 15, because of our brethren. If we love our brethren, we keep the commandments of Christ. It's that simple. It is no mistake that the murder victim, the first murder victim, died at the hand of someone who was supposed to be his brother. And seeing through a glass darkly, we can determine that the murderer was not really his brother at all. Therefore, as John also explained, we know our brethren by the fruits of the Spirit and the love that they show for the body of Christ. However, this is also why all Christians must be willing to submit themselves to God. We cannot truly conduct ourselves after the manner of love for our brethren unless we agree to the law of God, bringing wolves into the sheepfold, justifying the laying aside of the law for any reason, allowing sodomy or any other grievous sin 
We cannot truly love our brethren. Submission to God is true Christian humility. And when we are willing to do so, we shall not trespass against our brethren. For that reason, Paul said in Romans chapter 13, as the Christian New Testament has it, love for him near to you, love for your neighbor, who does not practice evil, therefore fulfilling of the law is love. Fulfilling of the law of God is an exhibition and the manifestation of love to your brother. Likewise, Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, for all the law is fulfilled in one statement, you shall love him near to you as yourself. Accordingly, the apostle James wrote, James 2.8, if, however, you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love him near to you, as yourself, you do well. If you keep the law of God, you'll love your brother. If you don't keep God's law, you'll end up being a murderer and hate your brother. From the wisdom of Sirach, perhaps 300 years before Christ, they that fear the Lord will not disobey his word. And they that love him will keep his ways. They that fear the Lord, or Yahweh, will seek that which is well, pleasing unto him. And they that love him shall be filled with the law. They that fear Yahweh will prepare their hearts and humble their souls in his sight. True humility is submission to God, saying, we will fall into the hands of Yahweh and not into the hands of men. We would rather that God be our judge. For as his majesty is, so is his mercy. True humility is humility before God to submit oneself to his word. If all Christian Israelites submitted themselves to God, we wouldn't have Satan around any longer to bother us. We wouldn't have the Jews and all of these aliens overrunning us. The fourth book of Maccabees is a late book, probably from the late second or even the first century BC. In the book, there is an account of a priest named Eleazar, his wife and his son, seven brothers and their parents, who were put to death, according to the account, by Antiochus Epiphanes for standing up to the tyrant and remaining steadfast in the laws of God. In the conclusion of the account, it says in part of the seven brothers, the brotherly, brotherly love being thus sympathetically constituted, the seven brethren had a more sympathetic mutual harmony for being educated in the same law and practicing the same virtues and reared up in a just course of life. They increased this harmony with each other for a like ardor 
for what is right and honorable increased their fellow feeling towards each other. That's the model. Brighton Septuagint, 4 Maccabees, chapter 13. A common a common love for the law of Yahweh God in Christ is the only way that Christians will ever find a truly steadfast and common love for one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul continues with this discourse on the value of the gifts of the Spirit within the assembly of God and on Christian deportment among the assembly as well, the topic he really hasn't left but has only taken a digression from here in chapter 13. Paul repeats in summary a few of the things that he says here, and that will give us a chance to hear them in summary as well. Yahweh willing, we shall continue at this point next week. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night to wrap up, I hope, Martin Luther on the Jews and their lives. Praise Yahweh.